He is risen. Yeah. Well, indeed, today is Easter Sunday, and uh, no, it is not about Easter bunnies and eggs. But I wanted to know what that was all about, so I started Googling it. And, uh, and I found it on the Internet, and we know that everything on the Internet is true, right? Um, what I found online was that this tradition of the Easter bunny started back in Germany in the 1600s. And evidently, the Easter bunny and eggs represent life. And so what would happen is, the day before Easter, this Easter bunny would lay eggs and bring eggs to a children based on how good they were. It's a lot like Santa Claus, trying to earn, earn Santa Claus's love, earn the Easter bunny's love. And so that's how we get this tradition of leaving Easter baskets filled with eggs and chocolate uh, at the kitchen table or whatnot as kids come and wake up on Easter morning. And uh, we know that's not, that's not Easter. <laughs> that's not what Easter is all about. In fact, what Easter is about is the resurrection of Jesus. That, that Jesus is alive and that the tomb had no victory over him. You know, I'm not much of a chess master, but I like playing chess. And so did a guy by the name of Paul Morphy. You see, Paul Morphy was an expert chess wizard. At the age of eight, he was considered a, a prodigy with chess. And at age nine, he beat the French champion in 17 moves. That's, a, that's studly right there. Nine-year-old, 17 moves. He beats the, the French champion. So you can imagine his excitement when he walked into a museum and saw a painting by a guy by the name of Moritz Reich. And Reich's painting was titled Checkmate. Now, if you know chess, the term checkmate means that the person that you're playing against, if you call checkmate, their king has no other moves left. Anywhere they move on the board, they're going to get captured and died. And, and the object of chess is to capture the king. So when you call checkmate, you're saying the other team has no other option. They're done. And so he saw this painting called Checkmate, and he's looking at it, just staring at it, admiring it. Unique to this painting was on one side of the chessboard is Satan, and on the other side of the chessboard is a man. And Satan is the one who calls checkmate to this man. Of course, it drips with imagery of a man there with Satan playing this game and realizing he's not going to win. You ever been like that in life? You feel checkmated by Satan, by your own choices, and you feel like any move you make is going to result in something terrible for you. Well, this painting de uh, depicts all of these images. And, and as, as Paul Morphy was looking at the painting, he's just staring at it. And all of a sudden, he noticed there wasn't a checkmate. And he began to declare, the king, hold on, the king has one more move. This is not a checkmate. The king has another move. And truth be told, that's the story of Easter. You see, on Good Friday, Satan had thought he won. Hell began to rejoice. Fear began to sit in. And indeed, it appeared to be a checkmate. God's own son had died. But here we are Sunday morning. And we know that the king has one more move. This, this game is not over. The king has another move, and that's Easter for us, church family. Yeah. 
that God has a story. Checkmate is not the case. God wins. So when Satan said checkmate, God got Australian on him. He says, check the tomb, mate. Right? And so we come to the book of Mark, chapters 15 and 16, where we see the significance of Jesus' resurrection. We live in a day, guys, you know this is true, where people are like, why do you believe that mess for? I mean, 2,000 years ago, you're saying a guy walked out of the grave? Why would you believe in such child play? Religion is for the weak. It's a crutch. But what we're going to come to see, as I mentioned earlier today, that the resurrection of Jesus has never been disproven. And it is no crutch, but indeed fact. And what God wants then is for you and I to see that we've got choices to make based upon the facts of Jesus' resurrection. We can't believe that he raised from the dead and do nothing about it. And so Mark chapter 15 and 16, we're going to take a look at this story, this beautiful story as it unfolds. If you will, would you turn your Bibles with me to Mark 15, verse 42. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in front of you there. Turn there to page 852, page 852. And we really mean this. If you don't own a Bible, if you don't have one at home, um, please take the one in front of you. That really is our gift to you. We preach the Bible because we believe it. And through these words, God changes lives. And we would love for it to be in your hands. Mark chapter 15. We see that Jesus on Good Friday was crucified. He had been betrayed by one of his disciples that he handpicked. The other 11 ran away in fear. Jesus was all alone when he was tried illegally, tortured, and then nailed to a bloody cross. Because he claimed to be the king of the Jews, they wrapped a cloak around him, a purple cloak, because he was a king. And they put a crown on him, but not of gold, but of thorns. And there on that cross, around 3 p.m., pitch black in the sky, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last breath. Well, when evening time came, a man by the name of Joseph from a city called Arimathea wanted to do something about Jesus' body. In chapter 15, verse 42, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before Sabbath, and Sabbath is a Saturday, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He said kingdom of God. He took courage, say took courage, and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him, whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse, say the corpse, he granted the corpse to, to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is a grim story, but a story of courage. We see this man who's unknown to us until this moment, Joseph, who was a respected leader, in the, a religious leader of the day. 
He put his reputation on the line to take down a crucified criminal and bury him in a tomb. He put his life on the line when he went to the Roman governor, Pilate, asking for permission to do this. This guy was a convicted criminal. Why do you care so much about him? But not only is this a story of a man and his courage, but it's also a story that gives us necessary details. You see, we we notice that Joseph knew Jesus was dead. That's why he asked for the body. It was evening already. And what Mark, who wrote this, wants to see is that, yes, Jesus was dead. And as Joseph went to Pilate, Pilate was a bit surprised. He's like, he's dead already? So he got one of his centurions, one of his Roman leaders, saying, hey, go check that out. See if this man has truly died. And a centurion went and verified that, yes, he was dead. Keep in mind, the Roman Empire crucified hundreds of thousands of people church history tells us. And from all accounts, there is not one record of anybody surviving a crucifixion. Well, there's a reason for that. Well, these centurions were executioners. An executioner's job is to put people to death. People don't survive an execution. And so the centurion When he was there, looked at Jesus on the cross to verify his death, the book of John tells us, he took a spear, pierced Jesus' side, and blood and water began to flow, and Jesus did not flinch. Why? Well, he was dead. So the centurion comes to Pilate and tells Pilate, indeed, he's dead. And Pilate, trusting his centurion, says, okay, Joseph, you may take the body. You may take the body. This is important. Because there are some today who would want to say that Jesus wasn't truly dead on that cross. That that he was beaten severely, but when he was put into this cold tomb, his body was able to resuscitate, and he was able to walk out of it on Sunday morning. But it just can't be the case. Joseph confirms it. The centurion confirms it. Pilate confirms it. And the women who saw where where Joseph placed the body confirms it. Now, I like the movie The Princess Bride. Maybe you've seen it before. It's a good one. It's got dry humor. And there's a guy named Inigo Montoya who's out to take revenge on his foes. And he has a friend named Wesley. And Wesley, throughout some combat, dies. And so Inigo Montoya hears of a magician who can raise people from the dead. So he takes his friend Wesley to this magician guy. And he tells him, hey, can you bring my friend back to life? And, And the magician tells him, well, why do you want him back? Does he owe you money? And he says, well, let me, let me ask him if he owes you money. And then Nigo Montoya's like, he's dead. He can't talk. And the magician replies, oh, look at you. You're an expert now, huh? You know this guy can't talk. He says, the problem with you is you don't realize your friend is only mostly dead, which means he's almost alive. And the guy looks at him like, what? He's like, yes, as long as he's mostly dead, there's still a chance that he's almost alive. And he goes on to talk about Wesley and how to bring him back because he wasn't completely dead. Of course, this is all dry humor. But the truth of the matter is Jesus wasn't mostly dead on that cross. He was dead. He was dead. Joseph knew it. The centurion knew it. Pilate knew it. The women knew it. Jesus was not playing possum. He was crucified and executed. Well, now this matters to us. 
If he's truly dead, then how can we dare say he's alive? And this is where Mark chapter 16 comes into play. Look at verses 1 through 4. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. Here these women are having a conversation on the way to the tomb. They saw where Joseph put the body, and they're thinking to themselves, How, what are we going to do here? We've got to find someone to help us roll back this, this stone. And as images see, as we go to the, if you go to the Holy Land, you'll see pictures of how these stones, these rolled away stones are put on top of a hill, and when a tomb is full, they roll it down this little crevice so it stays put. And it's very difficult to roll back. You need many people. And so here the women are hoping there's some workers out in the garden, perhaps, passerbys, that they can say, hey, can you help us roll back this stone? And find some men around to help with that. And I'm left asking a question, well, by the way, where were the men? Where were the disciples? Well, we're told that they were hiding. They were afraid. In a beautiful twist, God places the evidence of his resurrection first on three women who visited the tomb. The reason this is extremely significant is because in the first century, women's voices were not seen as authoritative, and therefore they could not even be witnesses in court. They could witness a crime, but if they were the only eyewitnesses, the person would get off because their witness, their testimony, had no voice in the first century Middle Eastern culture. And what God does is he gives voice to the voiceless here. And see, if this was a made-up story, if men wrote this story in the first century, they would not have put the voice in these three women here. They would have put Peter there, wouldn't they? James, John, Thomas, others. But they put the women. And that twist, God saying, hey, this happened. And the way earthly courts view things are not the way heavenly courts do. Their voice testifies to the resurrection. What's so cool is who these women were. If you look at chapter 15, verses 40 and 42, we see that these women were there at the crucifixion of Jesus. You see their names, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and then a woman named Salome. We see in chapter 15, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, again, the mother of Joseph, was there. And here we again see Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, present at the tomb. Now, what's so cool is Mary Magdalene was a follower of Jesus. Salome was the mother of James and John. But this other Mary, who had two sons named James and Joseph, is significant because Jesus had a mother named Mary who had two sons named James and Joseph. So here we see Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and John and James' mother, Salome, there at the cross, at the burial, and here at the empty tomb. And they are the ones who testify to the fact that Jesus is alive. A beautiful, beautiful way that God is taking the chaos of the moment and putting it together. What's equally amazing is what, this, what happens when they get to this tomb. The stone is rolled away, 
And naturally, if you're like them and I'm like them, you want to take a look inside. Well, verse 5 says, In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The other Gospels tell us that this was an angel. And it's clear here, this young man with light robes, white robes there, he was an angelic being. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Well, because they were alarmed. Have you ever seen an angel? I'd be afraid. You show up into a tomb that a stone is rolled back, you expect to see a dead man, and there's this guy in white robes sitting up talking to you? Yeah, that's scary. And he says, don't be alarmed. Why? He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? And the women are there taking a look. See, this is the important thing. You may come today here and you're investigating the claims of Christianity. Maybe you've heard of Jesus' resurrection for many years. But you never take it to yourself. Say, is this true? Why do churches fill up on Easter? Why do people go out there telling others about Jesus? Well, because we believe that Jesus indeed is alive. There's a pastor named Ed Stetzer who wrote an article for CNN this past week. And he says, you know, there's a lot of you who are reading this article who've been invited by your friends to go to church. Please don't be annoyed by your Christian friends. They really do mean well, he says. They're not trying to hassle you. He goes on to say the reason that they're inviting you to church on Easter is because they actually care about you. Maybe you're here today because someone invited you, and you need to know that that person cared about you. It was a flyer you saw. Someone cared to put that flyer in your door. Someone cared to post that thing on Facebook. And here's why. Because we understand that if Jesus has truly raised from the dead, then we can have eternal life through him. And your friend loves you enough for you to hear that news. See, and there's compelling evidence to support this fact. As I mentioned earlier, for 2,000 years, there's been plenty of haters. History is filled with them who've made it their ambition to disprove this resurrection, and they've come up with theory after theory after theory, and not one of them has stuck to the ground like a post-it note. It may stick for a moment, but it falls to the side like, no, that's not working. In fact, I, went, I read one book by a man who, who hated Jesus, hates the resurrection, and he came to the conclusion that the best idea, explanation for the resurrection, other than the fact that Jesus is alive, is that everyone had a mass hallucination at the same time. He says that's the most plausible evidence. This is an unbeliever from his own mouth. The reason he comes to that conclusion is, well, first of all, God put the women there at the empty tomb. No one would have made that up. There were two men who walked away from Jerusalem on a road to a city called Emmaus, discouraged, just confused. Their Savior, Jesus, the one they hoped and had just been crucified until Jesus meets them on that road, and now they have clarity, now it made sense to them, and they told others about that. It made sense to Thomas, when Jesus appeared to the ten disciples, Judas was already gone. Thomas was out somewhere. We don't know where. Maybe he was buying eggs or something. But imagine his frustration when he got back home, and they're like, you just missed it. Jesus was here. I mean, isn't that disappointing? 
St. Thomas, like much of us do, he told them, he says, you know what? I don't believe you. Not until I put my fingers into his holes in his hands and I touch the holes in his side, he says, until that happens, I will never believe, Thomas says. Well, not long after that, Jesus appears to Thomas. He says, Thomas, check out the holes. Touch my side. It's me. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus replies to him, Thomas, blessed are you for believing. You believe with seeing, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. And history from that point forward has been filled with hundreds of thousands of millions of people who have believed without seeing. Because they know that the only explanation for the resurrection, the only explanation for the lives that have been changed is that Jesus indeed is alive. And there are some of you here today who say, yes, that's my story. I was in the mud. I was stuck in sin. I was lost and confused until Jesus opened my eyes and showed me he died for me and rose for the dead for me. And ever since the day I trusted in him, I'm a new woman. I'm a new man. It is evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus could do it. That's why Paul says this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And you, of all people, should be pitied because you're wasting your time. But there Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised. In fact, in the book of Luke, when they come to the tomb, they said, the angels tell the people, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why, why do you go to the produce aisle to buy meat? Why do you expect to find cats at an aquarium store? Why do you expect to see the living among the dead? You see, Jesus is alive. His resurrection is something that we can place our confidence in. He has conquered the grave. Why did he do it? Why? Is it just give us another holiday? Give us something to get excited about? Well, this is the reason here. You can't miss this. You see, the Bible says that the wages or the penalty of our sin is death. A sin is any way that we rebel against God. It could be the little lie we share, the way we disobey. It could be anything as big as you could think of. But if it's anything other than being perfect then you are imperfect, and God who is perfect cannot dwell with imperfection for eternity. So what the Bible tells us is that your sin and my sin separates us from God. This is what we're talking about. And it separates us from God, not just in this idea, but heaven is real, hell is real, and apart from Jesus, hell is where all of us go. And God is a just God, and he can't let your sin and my sin go unpunished. But this, this is Easter. Because on Good Friday, Jesus went to the cross. And on that cross, your sin was put on his shoulders. And your sin was punished. Death happened. But if you believe in Jesus, it doesn't happen, have to happen to you eternally. Because it happened to Jesus. And when he died, you died by faith. 
And when he raised, you will raise by faith. This is the hope of Easter. And you've got to understand, please hear me, you could do nothing to earn heaven on your own. If you believe today, you believe because God put it in your heart to believe. Because our hearts are so wicked, we don't love God on our own. We don't want God on our own. God has given us the heart and desire for him. All glory goes to him. And he may be stirring in you today. That's God stirring in you today. There's nothing you can do to earn heaven on your own. It's a hopeless task. Now, you may have heard of a swimmer named Diana Nyad. If you're a swimmer, you've heard of her. She's known to be a long-distance swimmer. At the age of 28, she tried to swim from Havana, Cuba to Florida. And if you're like me, you're like, why would you want to do that for? I mean, really? And her whole life, that was her dream. And at age 28, she tried and failed. And she gave up on the idea. But as she entered into her 60s, she had some sports psychologists tell her, you still have the drive. And this task is not so much about physical strength, but about mental strength. She tried three more times and failed each time. In fact, it says at one point, she had to stop swimming because she got stung by so many jellyfish, her tongue grew swollen and she couldn't breathe. But at the age of 64, she left the shores of Havana, Cuba, and made the 53-hour uh, swim, 110 miles, when she finally stepped foot in the southernmost part of Florida. Crazy, right? Her motto was, find a way. <laughs> now, as much as I've read about Diana Nyad, I have never heard her say, you know what? Next on the list, New York to London. 3,470 miles. I got you. She'd be a lunatic to say that. Why? There's a gulf too big for her to cross, no matter how hard she wants to find a way. You know, when we try to earn heaven, we're like a swimmer who's trying to find a way to an impossible task. There's nothing you and I can do. To get there on our own. Jesus needed to make a way happen. Blaise Pascal, the famous French philosopher, in so many words says that each of us has an eternal abyss within our, whole, our hearts. An abyss. And he says we try to fill it with so many other things and nothing satisfies. It's like that kid who has the block with the different shapes in it. They have their pegs, the circular peg and the, 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 the rectangular peg. And they're trying so hard to put that circle in a triangle. You seen kids do that? Trying so hard to do it. They're just frustrated. And we sit back and laugh at them like, what are you doing? And yet, that's what we do. We've got an abyss in our hearts. We've got a God-shaped vacuum within us. And we are trying to fill it with all kinds of things and frustrated that those things aren't making us satisfied. They could be good things. But we ask, why isn't my job making me all happy? Because your job is not capable of doing that. And you try to fill it with relationships and those won't satisfy perfectly. And all the expectations, the bank account, no matter how much is in there, will never satisfy you completely. 
In fact, there was a man who was a billionaire, and they asked him, how much money do you need to, to be content? He says, I'll let you know when I've got it. See, no matter what we try to fill our lives with, this God-shaped vacuum cannot be filled by anything else but God. This is why Easter matters. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the grave. Jesus walked out of the grave so that your vacuum could be filled for eternity. But until you put your faith in Jesus, you remain separated from God. The gap is too far. The abyss remains. There's either heaven or hell for us. Apart from Jesus, it's always hell. This is why we invite you to Easter. Well, the women showed up at the tomb, and the man This angelic being says, he's not here, he's risen. And then he gives them some instructions. He tells them this here in verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The angel says, hey, you know the truth now. Now it's your responsibility to go and tell others that Jesus is alive. If you're a Christian today, you've got that responsibility. Church, it is your responsibility to see the empty tomb and say others need to know. There's a man named Penn Gillette who's a comedian, a magician, a juggler who performs in Las Vegas. He's also a well-known atheist. And he talks about Christians who try to proselytize as much of our culture says, which is basically to convince someone of your beliefs. We all do it in one form or another. For for the last, you know, 25 years, people have tried to proselytize me to be a Cubs fan, all right? I'm staying with my Southside White Sox. I I know, I'm confused, but I'm staying with them, all right? Good days are ahead, trust me. We're, We're taking a Cubs model next year, next year, right? But we all try to convince people of what we feel deeply about, don't we? But it's interesting to hear what this atheist says about Christians who proselytize, who share their faith. He says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. He says, if you believe that there is a heaven and hell, and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them because this would be socially awkward. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? Hear that? He's saying, if you're a Christian and you believe in the realities of heaven and the reality of hell, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them how to get to heaven? How to tell someone, hey, you've got an abyss. I see it. I had it too. I tried all kinds of things, even good things. None of it satisfied me because they weren't meant to satisfy me. The only thing to satisfy is Jesus. Compelling. How this man says, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them about Jesus? He is risen, church. We need to tell someone. We hear the angel tells the ladies, you got to go tell Peter and the rest of them that Jesus is alive. And we hear in verse 8, it says, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing. Say nothing. Nothing. 
they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You hear that? They're at the empty tomb, and yes, it's jarring. I'm sure it was. But their immediate impulse was to not say a word out of fear. Out of fear. Family, we've got to speak up. We've got to tell people how good Jesus is. And I was thinking this week, why is it that people can hear about Jesus? Even people at the brook, people in my life, but not want to live for him. And I've been confronted with these questions often in my life. And I'm convinced that one of the most prominent reasons is in our heart of hearts, we don't believe that Jesus is better. We we look around us and we think, yeah, that that God-shaped hole in the heart thing, that sounds good. But man, a four-bedroom house sounds really good too. That, that, That vacuum in my heart, I get what you're saying, I could use 100 grand in my bank account, though. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to live it my way. I'm going to find a way. Because down inside, we don't believe Jesus is better. But Jesus is better. I and others can testify to it. To know that the God of the universe will adopt you as his daughter, and you as his son, and say, hey, you're forgiven. I know your mess. I know your secrets. I know the thoughts that you don't even want to think. I know the thoughts that you would tremble at the idea that anybody even knows what's in your mind. So God's like, I know that. But when you ask my forgiveness, I declare you forgiven. If you would turn from your sin and follow me. Jesus is better. To walk forgiven, to be given a joy that can't be quenched because he fills the vacuum a former pastor up in Minnesota that says God is most satisfied in us when we are, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. See, when we're satisfied in God, He is ultimately glorified, and the truth is you can be satisfied in God. All your world could be falling apart, but if you've got Jesus, you can say, it is well with my soul. Jesus is better. Jesus is So when I see here that out of fear they remain silent, you know where this is going. If you believe, will you speak up? Will you say, He is risen? He is risen? Now I want you to say, He is risen. Say it. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. So when I point, I want to hear that, all right? Ready? Let's do it again. He is risen indeed. After he died in your place, he walked out of the grave. He took his last breath, but then put death to death, cuz, so we could be forgiven of our sin. This was the only way to pay for sin, guilt, and shame. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed, church. Will you be silent? When angel says, go tell someone. You see the tomb. There's no one here. He has risen. He said he would do this. He did it. God has made it happen. All of history proves it. Men and women throughout history, people in this room, will you open your mouth and tell people 
of the resurrection. Good Friday appeared to be checkmate. But the king had another move. His friends abandoned him. One betrayed him. They had an illegal trial. Another friend denied him three times. He was nailed to a cross. The cross that he carried onto a mount. People jeered at him and jarred at him and made fun of him, mocking him. It all appeared to be over when he took his last breath, was put in a tomb. Checkmate. No. The Easter bunny is a great myth. The empty tomb is a compelling fact. The king has another move. He made his move. He walked out of the grave. And now you have a move to make. What will you do with this? Will you say, yes, I believe, and then forget an hour later? Or will you say, Jesus, you're better? These pegs, they don't fit. That abyss is too big. That ocean is too vast. Jesus, you, I need you. I need you. You died in my place. You rose from the dead so that if I believe that you paid for my sin and turned from my sin and believe in your resurrection, I can have eternal life. Jesus, today I'm doing that. For some of you, that's what God wants you to do today. Will you make that choice? Or will you proceed in taking these pegs and expecting things that weren't meant to satisfy you to meet your every need? The choice you've got to make. There's a move you've got to make. And if you're a child of God today, will you take this message with you to lunch? To the dinner table with family? To your car? Will you let it ruminate in your mind? meditate upon it and say, indeed, Jesus, this is what you wanted from me. I want to live for you. You see, next week we're going to start a series on the end times. And the end times begins when Jesus cracks the skies. Because he said he's coming back. And one day he's going to unroll the clouds like a scroll. And those of us who believe in Jesus will be raised to life for all of eternity. This is why Easter matters today. Oh, how I pray that you would make that choice to follow him. In a moment, I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to sing a final song, but here's what I want you to, to know. We're going to have a prayer team here in the front and sides here and in the back. God's moving in your life right now, in your heart. Don't deny him. Don't push him away. He's everything you need. He's all that you need. My hope and prayer is that you would stop fighting him and you would bow your hearts to him. The prayer team's here because they want to pray with you. They just want you to know that you're loved. They want you to know that you can be called the son or daughter of God. Maybe you are a child of God. And the prayer team's here because maybe you're saying, you know, I, I've been gone for long, God. I've, I've been that prodigal son, that prodigal daughter. I've, I've been trying to do it my way, God, and I'm struggling. The prayer team wants to pray with you so you can get right with him start following again as Jesus has made you to do. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you get the last word, that the king has another move. 
tomb is empty. God, we say what we say today, not tongue-in-cheek, but with conviction, because we believe in our hearts that, God, you raise your son from the dead. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Indeed, death was put to death by the one who defied death. And so, Lord, we come before you this afternoon praying that you would move in hearts and that some would cross from death to life today, from hell to heaven today, from darkness to light. Do this, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's rise to our feet. Prayer team, would you come in your places? And as we sing this final song, we've got four walls in this building right here, in this room. I would love for these walls to resound with the voices of people who indeed can say, death could not hold him down. If you believe that, would you sing it like you mean it? Prayer team is here to bear with anyone with whatever burdens you got in your heart. Let's lift it up together, church.
go forth in the hope of Jesus today, church family. You are dismissed. He is risen. See you downstairs.